Hello and welcome. My name is Robert Bruce and I work as a financial journalist. With me to discuss the highlights of the May 2010 meeting of the IFRS Interpretations Committee are its chairman, Bob Garnett, and Michael Stewart, Director of Implementation Activities. Um, if we start talking about the main topics discussed at the May meeting, Bob, do you want to talk us through what happened on accounting for production stripping costs? Yeah, certainly, Robert. It's, uh, it's an interesting title, and it might confuse many people listening in. So uh, this doesn't have the same salacious connotation that uh, perhaps stripping has in other parts of the leisure industry. Uh, IFRS apply very broadly and very generally to a wide range of industries, uh, but sometimes they have scope exclusions and don't explicitly deal with them. And uh, one of the industries perhaps that has more scope exceptions than others is the uh, extractive industry, uh, oil and gas and mining. And a particular issue has arisen in the mining industry uh, where divergent practices have developed over time uh, that give very substantially different results. If I can just bear with me for 30 seconds, Robert, and uh, <laughs> I'll give you the, the background to this. But for surface mining operations, uh, what's really valuable, the ore, is usually contained underneath uh, the top strata of uh, earth. Uh, that has to be literally stripped away uh, in order to gain access to the reserve. In preparation for a new mine, of course, all of the, uh, uh, the pre-production costs, the development costs as we call them, uh, are generally capitalised, and that would include the preparation uh, to gain access to the ore. But the question then arises, well, what happens when we've started producing the ore and we're getting the ore out of the ground, uh, but we still have uh, additional costs to get deeper access or better access? If you think of it in terms of digging a hole in the ground, there's only so far you can go down before you've got to widen the side of the hole, otherwise it just collapses on top of you. So this is the issue that we've got, uh, the practical issue. Uh, in financial reporting terms, some people said, well, production stripping costs are an expense of production, and so they expense them as a cost of producing the inventory. Others have said that it equates to a capital cost because there is a benefit from the improved uh, access to the ore body, so there's an economic uh, gain that takes place, and so it should be capitalised like other assets that meet the definition of an asset. And around the world, the practice is probably 50-50, split between expensing and capitalising. So that means there is little or no comparability. That's why the issue has come to us. Uh, the committee has actually been working on this. This is the third time we've uh, discussed the issue. Uh, it took a little bit of time to uh, be educated <laughs> in some of the nuances of this. Uh, but we're now almost at the stage where we believe we can issue a draft interpretation. And very simply, the views that we came to at the May meeting uh, were that if the costs that are incurred in production uh, stripping don't meet the definition of an asset, they should be expensed. That should be pretty clear to everybody. The difficult question is to determine, though, when they do meet the definition of an asset. And tentatively, the committees decided that if, in fact, there is an organised plan to develop access to the reserves and the costs of that development can be identified and therefore the benefit can be identified, uh, then there is the basis for recognising those costs as an asset. So typically if uh, production was on a rolling or continuous basis, uh, so you would prepare access for next week's stripping by removing the overburden today, then that would be expensed. 
if you're pushing back the size of a pit, an open pit mine, and the benefit would uh, extend over the next one, two, three, four, five years perhaps, then that's the type of thing that you would capitalise. Now, obviously, the IFRIC needs to put a lot more detailed words in there uh, to help people to understand when they should and should not capitalise these costs. That will get back to in the interpretation next month. Good. Michael, do you want to talk through another one of the topics discussed in May, the vesting and non-vesting conditions? Yes, certainly. Thank you. Um, yes, vesting and non-vesting conditions uh, relates to uh, the standard that we have on share-based payments, IFRS 2. Now, IFRS 2 is a standard that um, is highly sort of rules-based and is quite a complex standard to apply. And we do find we get a lot of um, uh, inquiries ab- about that one. Um, an area within it that we were getting a number of issues being raised was to do with the vesting and non-vesting conditions. Now, what these are, these are the conditions that must be met typically by an employee in order for that employee to receive the options or the shares uh, from their employer. And the the issue that uh, we're looking at here really is about um, this lack of clarity in the different types of vesting or non-vesting conditions that the standard describes. And so what we're doing here is looking at all of these conditions, um, looking at the different types that we have, and we we have ones which are service conditions which focus purely on an employee remaining employed by the company. We have performance conditions which look not just at the employee being employed, but certain um, key metrics that need to be met during that employment in order for them to qualify for the um, shares or the the options. And then non-vesting conditions which would be other conditions that would affect whether or not the employee receives those, those shares ultimately. And so what the committee has been looking at is an analysis of um, these various definitions as we have them at the moment and looking at how those definitions might be revised or clarified in order to make the standard easier to apply. Now, when we're looking at potentially changing words within the standards, we need to be very careful about what impact that might have on the accounting consequences. Uh, The issue that was brought to us was about the lack of clarity in being able to apply rather than necessarily um, the results of applying it properly being a a wrong answer, if you like. Um, And so one of the things that the committee is also looking at and and is very concerned to, to get a full understanding of is whether um, amendments that we might make to the wording to make it clearer, to what extent might that change the accounting outcomes. And so what the committee have have asked the the staff to do for the next meeting is to bring back a further analysis of um, these definitions and look and see how those would apply in certain circumstances to see what impact these potential changes might have and also to propose what those actual wording changes might be that could help the standard to be applied um, more easily in the future. Um, And and part of uh, what the the, the committee has also um, done is to to consider to what extent we are already um, aligned with the US equivalent standard 
um, and to what extent we might be able to borrow some of the, uh, the, the wording from there to help us clarify our own standard, still holding true to the principles that are in IFRS 2. Michael, at the uh, committee meeting, I think there was a bit of concern that was raised by some people uh, that our analysis was actually very detailed. Um, there's some concern that perhaps if we were to apply that analysis, it might result in a total rewrite of the standard. Uh, but of course, we don't want to alarm our constituents, uh, certainly not at this stage. Uh, could you perhaps uh, reflect on what alternatives would be available to us in, uh, in achieving these lofty objectives of improving financial reporting? Indeed. Well, the, the, the committee has taken this project onto its agenda principally as an interpretive project, so with the goal of leading to an interpretation. But when developing an interpretation, uh, the committee has, has the ability to propose amendments to the wordings of the standards. So uh, it, it has available to it the option of um, purely issuing some interpretive guidance, an IFRIC, that would simply explain how um, more clearly to apply the existing standard, or perhaps in conjunction with that, to propose some amendments to the wording uh, that hand-in-hand hand with an interpretation would lead to easier application of the standard. Uh, another alternative might be to recommend simply uh, amendments to the wording, um, and that would be something that would need to then be referred to the ISB itself. Yeah. So really a deep cleansing of only a small section of the standard. Indeed. The third main topic you discussed was about put options over non-controlling interests. Do you want to give us a quick run through that? Yes. Um, This, I I think, is a a rather interesting area. Um, It relates to situations where you you have a, a consolidated group so that the, the parent company in the group has a subsidiary, but where it doesn't own the whole of that subsidiary. So there is um, part of that subsidiary is owned uh, by another party, and we refer to that as the non-controlling interest. Now, uh, put options in this circumstance are where that parent has written a put option to the non-controlling interest, allowing that non-controlling interest shareholder to force the parent to repurchase those shares from the non-controlling interest at some future date. Uh, But it's only an option. It's not something that will definitely happen. It's in the hands of the non-controlling interest. Now, we have various guidance within RFRS that deals with these types of issues. But the concern that was raised to the committee that it's been asked to look at is um, when we are looking at the accounting for this, Um, there seems to be some inconsistency in two pieces of the IFRS literature, both of which seem to have some bearing on this particular issue. The um, put option itself, when it's first um, accounted for, um, a liability is recognised for the amount that might have to be paid if the option is exercised. And so that liability is is recognised. The concern that's been raised, though, is to do with the accounting after that point in time. So if the amount to be paid is a variable amount, perhaps it's the the fair value of the shares at the date that the option is exercised, then how do you deal with that remeasurement? Should that remeasurement be reflected as a, a charge or a credit in the profit or loss account? Or should that um, uh, adjustment be taken directly into um, equity? Now, 
we have two pieces of literature. One seems to say you take it to profit or loss. The other one seems to say you're not allowed to take those types of adjustments to profit or loss, and hence the, the dilemma. So the committee has um, decided that this is an important area. It's particularly important because uh, one of the regulators in, in, in one of the European countries has issued and published some um, guidance or some advice to its own um, constituents saying that there is a clear choice here. And that clear choice is clearly going to present diversity uh, between those companies that go one way versus those companies that go another. So the, the committee has seen that this is an important area. Some of the numbers involved with, with listed companies can be quite significant, and so it feels that it really does need to, to take this further. So it'll be looking at this again at the next um, meeting and looking at some um, more examples of uh, the issue and how it might resolve the, the concerns. Excellent. So we look forward to that in the in the next podcast. Yes. Okay. Can we look at um, some of the work in progress that the committee is doing? Um, Bob, do you want to talk about the repeat application of IFRS 1? Yes. Uh, Robert, this, this section is really the items that have just come to the yes. committee for the first time. So at the, uh, at the main meeting, uh, the committee decided it would have uh, some interest in taking them a little bit further, uh, but not quite as far down the track as the, the previous mention, uh, previous items that we've mentioned. Now, repeat application of IFRS 1 does sound a little bit strange if I give you the full title of that standard, which is first-time application. So this sounds like if the first time was really good, <laughs> will the second time be even better? Uh, it arises in some circumstances that really weren't considered when uh, we first issued IFRS 1. Uh, just to remind everybody, in case you've forgotten, uh, 2005, when the majority of the world adopted IFRS for the first time, uh, we had transition requirements to help people move from whatever their previous gap was onto IFRS. But situations have arisen since then when some companies have been reporting under IFRS and then for a variety of reasons have moved off it. Uh, generally, the, the reason is that the companies that were listed on a securities exchange have been taken private for a number of years, and they're now coming back. Now, the purpose of IFRS 1 was actually to assist people to provide relevant information during the transition onto IFRS 1. It allows some exceptions from the normal requirements, uh, but it also has some fairly strict requirements, which is that you should use the latest version of IFRS for all the periods that are presented in the first financial statements. But it has a definition of a first-time adopter, which is that they didn't assert compliance with IFRS in the previous reporting period. And so for that reason, we've uh, established uh, that around the world where the situation arises, some people are saying that even though a company had been an adopter of IFRS in a previous period, because it didn't assert in the immediately preceding period that it was in compliance with IFRS because it was using its own national gap, yes. that it should be allowed to use these requirements again. So at this stage, it's too early to say that we made any tentative decisions other than we believe that there is a lot of sympathy for improving the quality of the first financial statements the second time they adopt IFRS, <laughs> or perhaps even the third, um, and that we should give consideration, further consideration, to actually clarifying uh, that they may do this. Some jurisdictions, uh, 
seem to have a blanket ban on multiple first-time adoption. Others are more sympathetic to that. Uh, so that's something that uh, we'll come back to the July meeting and uh, then we'll consider probably an amendment to IFRS 1 to either permit or restrict multiple use. And, and of course, one special case that uh, the committee did uh, consider as well was the special case of moving from the IFRS for SMEs, the small and medium-sized enterprises, onto full IFRS, uh, which would be an example of a particular type of previous gap moving on to IFRS. So there may need to be something special that is uh, looked at there, given that that's a particular type of previous scale. Do you want to move on to another topic, which is moved into work in progress, which is accounting for periods of chronic hyperinflation? Yes, thank you. Um, yes, this is a, a really an issue that's arisen out in Zimbabwe. As we all know, Zimbabwe yeah. has suffered some chronic hyperinflation, um, which really resulted in... Um, certainly in the early parts of 2009, of the currency effectively becoming inoperative. And so when it comes to uh, financial reporting purposes and IFRS financial reporting, uh, the guidance that we have in the standard IS-29, which is to do with reporting in hyperinflationary environments, um, it just broke down. So the the kind of data that is needed to apply IS-29 just wasn't available. Um, Even the alternative uh, methods that IS-29 provides couldn't be used. So we're left with a situation where companies were, were just stuck, couldn't do IFRS reporting. And so the, the issue that the committee has um, started to look at and um, will continue to, to look at uh, is how do companies in that situation deal with um, getting back onto reporting in accordance with IFRS? And so what the committee has uh, so far been considering is perhaps looking at the circumstances of at the period in which the, uh, the, the company either usually would, would find itself with a new functional currency. So rather than, say, the, the Zimbabwe dollar, it would have another currency, a hard currency, maybe the US dollar. Yeah. Um, and from that date forward how can it then start to apply IFRS? And in particular, at the date that its functional currency becomes, for example, the US dollar, what does it do? How does it start to re-recognise its assets and its liabilities on its balance sheet? Um, And so the the committee has been looking at um, how it might do that and will follow through with that um, further in the the next meeting. yeah, one of the issues, of course, that some people had thought of was that maybe the topic I previously talked about, the second yes. time, first time adoption, uh, might be appropriate here. Interestingly, though, the committee in, in discussing this uh, had some difficulty in even thinking if the entity could produce any financial statements yes. during this period. When its currency is not exchangeable with any other currency, in effect, it ceases to have a functional currency. Yes. And so really the the view that we're taking is that if you didn't have a currency before, if you didn't have financial statements before, there's nothing that you're changing from. So it's from the date on which you adopt this new functional currency, whatever that is, uh, and that's when you start your period of reporting under IFRS. Um, So in those cases, you really are a first-time adopter. (laughs) Life is complex. (laughs) Um, There were a couple of other... Areas of work in progress. Yes, uh, 
run through them? Well, one of them, perhaps, which has been uh, troubling some people in uh, jurisdictions where they have to provide, uh, either required by the regulator or voluntarily, additional periods of comparative information. And we have a requirement that if there's a change in accounting policies, a voluntary change, that an additional balance sheet or statement of financial position is required at the beginning of that period. And the question arose that uh, under IS1, you are required to produce at least one year of comparatives. Uh, but if you produce an extra year of comparatives, can you claim compliance with IFRS if you produce just an extra, shall we say, income statement, but not a balance sheet? Uh, or do you have to produce all the statements for all the three years and all the notes with it? Um, and if we came to the conclusion that you only have, or that you can produce just an extra income statement without the balance sheet, but there's a change in your accounting policy, do you have to produce the extra balance sheet at the beginning of the beginning of the third period, as it were, but not at the beginning of the next period, but then the two balance sheets? So it all sounds a little bit convoluted, and you must wonder why on earth are people worrying about this, Robert, but regulators do get little pernickety at times. Uh, so our view, um, and this is an issue that the board has discussed as part of its uh, project on financial statement presentation, uh, but we've discussed this with the intention of issuing some uh, uh, clear guidance at an earlier stage uh, than a revision of IS-1 uh, to confirm that you can actually produce one extra statement, but that statement should be in compliance with IFRS. And if you are required to produce the extra balance sheet for a change in accounting policy, it's at the beginning of the required comparative period. So having said that, it sounds as if all the stormy waters are now calming out in front of us. Good. Um, and exemptions? Talk about it. Yes, this is a little difficult because there are a number of countries that are wanting to adopt IFRS uh, coming on in 2011, 12 and 13, uh, and we'd hope continuously after that as well. And there are two of our standards, uh, both in financial instruments, uh, that have actually got what uh, people refer to as hardwired dates. That is, uh, you are required to account for transactions in a particular way on or later than the date, but that you can use your former accounting practice if it's before that date. Um, and not surprisingly, the dates were fixed just ahead of the 2005 conversion, so everybody thinks that really they should be rolled forward. And there's a lot of sympathy around the world to allowing these dates to be rolled forward all the time. Uh, but the question is really in these two isolated areas, one of them relates to derecognition. And uh, I think we're all aware that derecognition and off-balance sheet financing has been very much in people's minds yes. in the uh, past couple of years and still is. Uh, so to now be seen to be moving towards encouraging people to structure transactions under their old gap to get them off-balance sheets and then sanction that forevermore uh, doesn't actually seem to be in the interests of good, transparent financial reporting. No. So... Uh, we will give it some more serious consideration at the next meeting, but the uh, the committee has decided that it is a topic that we do need to address. Yeah. And there are a number of agenda decisions and tentative mm. agenda decisions going forward. Um, what's happening about going concern, Michael? Right, yes. Uh, 
Robert, this is um, the tentative for gender decisions are areas where the committee has decided that it's not going to do anything in terms of issuing an interpretation or making an amendment, but nevertheless uh, publishes its reasons for for deciding to um, in, in that way. And these uh, decisions are uh, tentative to begin with and open for public comment. Uh, this first one is, um, as I say, um, IS1, it's disclosures about going concern. Now, the issue that was raised uh, to us was um, highlighting a, a difference in requirements between um, our standards and the international auditing standards. And it relates to um, situations where an entity has perhaps had to do some um, serious analysis to confirm that uh, it is in a position to continue as a going concern. And obviously with the current financial crisis, etc., then that's very much in, in people's minds. Uh, now, in making that assessment, um, our standards at IS1 requires that uh, the fact that you've made that assessment needs to be disclosed. We also require a disclosure of those significant judgments that have been made in um, uh, in preparing the financial statements, so significant judgments, significant estimates. Um, what we don't have necessarily is an explicit requirement to link those two disclosures. But what we do have is an overall requirement that you provide the information necessary for users to properly understand the financial statements. So the question is, um, should there be an explicit link made, an explicit requirement made to link the disclosures about the assessment of going concern with the um, particular judgments that were made that were critical towards that assessment of going concern. That was contrasted in the submission that we received to uh, the requirement in the international auditing standards which require that that link is explicitly made and if it isn't made by the management of the company then the auditor is bound to, uh, to, to make that or to point that out in its audit report. Um, so the request was, could we change the standards, should we change the standards to, to bring our standards into line with the auditing standards. Now, the, the Interpretations Committee discussed this one at length and there were differing views around the table. Uh, there were some who felt, yes, why not, this would just make it easier, it would um, avoid uh, uncomfortable discussions between auditors and their clients, um, if we would just make this change. Some, however, felt that no, um, the principles in IS1 are clear. Um, if this is important information, which when we're talking about going concern, it's of fundamental importance to the company, and yes, it really should be uh, disclosed. So they felt that no, there was no need for it, and it would be inappropriate to uh, try to write in a rule because that's what we'll be talking about, adding a rule and really, you know, should we be getting into the habit of writing a rule every time that someone feels that we need the explicit link, when in fact um, the majority of the members of the committee felt that, you know, it was clear enough, the principles were clear enough and uh, people applying the principles in good faith should get to the disclosure of linking the two. So that, as I say, is um, a tentative agenda decision. It's available for public comment and would uh, be confirmed at the next committee meeting.
Um, there are a couple of others as well uh, that the uh, committee looked at. Um, one just mentioned in passing is to do with um, IS-12 and deferred taxes, and in particular looking at the recognition of deferred tax assets for unrealised losses on uh, certain types of financial investment. Uh, but there's further details of that in the IFRIC update on, on the website. Thank you, Michael. Next meeting, Bob, when is it? Uh, the IFRIC meets every two months at the beginning of the odd months, so uh, we'll be meeting again on Thursday and Friday, the 8th and 9th of July, and uh, we'd encourage people to come along and attend our meetings, either in person or the majority, actually, tune in onto the webcast. Um, and we can promise you we'll have another array of very interesting esoteric topics to discuss. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Michael. And finally, the traditional disclaimer. This podcast presents a, a non-authoritative overview of some of the major topics discussed during the May meeting. These express are those of the individuals in this podcast and are not necessarily those of the Interpretations Committee. Those of you who wish to go into the official detail of the meeting should refer to the, the IFRIC update, uh, which is published on the ISB website. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.